0: welcome to the bill kelly podcast i'm bill kelly well ndp leader jagmeet singh had some unfavorable comments about the nato target of two percent gdp for canada's defense spending mr singh joins us to qualify those statements uh, by the way ontario's finally signed on to the federal ten dollar a day childcare deal final province to do so what took so long well we'll discuss that too and uh, dr laurie turnbull joins us for a look at that and everything else that's going on this week in politics all coming up with the bill kelly podcast and it starts now Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. First of all, I want to talk about a number of different things that are happening in Ottawa these days. Uh, none the least of which, of course, is the uh, the child care program. Uh, but. Just as important, really, is the uh, the deal between the uh, federal NDP and the federal Liberals uh, to carry on governing for the next couple of years. A uh, lot of speculation about that. Seems everybody and all the pundits seem to have a, a one sort of a, a, an attitude toward it or another, I guess, depending on which side of the fence you're on. Uh, to get some clarity on this, please to welcome to the program Jack Meet Singh, who is the leader of the federal NDP party. Uh, Mr. Singh, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today.
1: Hey, happy to be on the show again. Thanks for having me.
0: Right off the top, uh, your response and reaction to uh, to the imminent deal that's signed, I guess, between uh, the province of Ontario and the federal government with the uh, the, the daycare program. I, I was going to start off by saying this should have happened years ago. It actually did in two thousand five, but a subsequent government, the Harper government, uh, nixed it. Uh, now that you're working in concert with the the federal Liberals on this, Mister Singh, how can you assure us? that this is gonna be a long lasting deal. You you, you're, you, have a young family, so I'm sure this, this resonates with you.
1: Absolutely, well, like you said, this is a long time coming. People in Ontario desperately needed this. The cost of childcare is, is incredibly high. It costs so much for families. And uh, part of actually the deal that we uh, were able to achieve, we used our power to include in the deal clear language that we wanted to make this childcare agreement across the provinces and territories permanent And we want legislation that makes it permanent. So it's not a scenario where it's put in place, families benefit from it, and then a subsequent government gets rid of it. So we want to have a legislation that that makes this concrete and ensures that it's long-lasting.
0: Were you surprised that, uh, I don't want to say it was easy to get the the, the other provinces to jump in. I mean, notwithstanding, you know, Ontario being the the party here. But, uh, I mean, places like Alberta, Saskatchewan, places like that, where you thought there might have been some resistance. Uh, They seem more than willing to to, to sit down and negotiate and and sign on on the deal relatively early. And and juxtapose that with what happened in 2005, where there was a lot of opposition to this. Uh, have, have, Have we matured as a society right now to understand that this has to be part of our economic recovery?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is because of the impacts of the pandemic. People really saw the impacts on families, the impacts on women in particular, not being able to get to work. At one point, we had lowest job participation of women since the '90s. All the gains that had been made were whittled away because of the the impact of the pandemic. So I think people were ready for it. The timing, uh, seeing how relevant it is, and the cost had get, gotten to a point that that no one could deny that this is key. And really, it's a uniting policy because whether you're on the conservative side of things or on the new Democratic side of things, people saw that this is really something that families need. Everyone agrees that the cost of child care was so high that many families were wondering whether it was worth it to go to work or not, given how expensive it would be to put your child into child care or daycare. So this is why it's something that I think made a lot of sense to people, and rightly so. It is really relevant to so many people
0: let's talk a little bit uh, about the deal uh, that you you struck with the prime minister uh, to work uh, alongside each other i guess to try to move an agenda forward uh, which is very difficult to do at the best of times i guess in a minority government you've seen some of the reaction mr singh about this i mean some people are calling it a coalition it's not uh, a couple of the uh, Conservative commentators have suggested you're now the Deputy Prime Minister, uh, if, if not in name, but in, in fact, and on and on it goes. Explain to us the deal and, and why it had to happen, because this, this is unusual. It hasn't happened federally uh, for a long, long time. 1917, I think, was the last time.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's certainly a, a unique thing, but not that unique for New Democrats to use our power to help people out. And really, that's what I've always wanted to do. Uh, Being in a minority government, I thought about Tommy Douglas, who was able to use his power and the party's power to get Medicare. thought about Jack Layden, who was able to use the power that he had in minority government with the Paul Martin government to bring in affordable housing. And so we thought, what can we do now that would help people out? Well, we heard so much from people around the cost of getting your teeth fixed and how expensive it is and how many people go without getting it done. And given the rising cost of living, we thought, how can we get help to people That's what Canadians are asking us to do, find ways to work together and find ways to get people help. So we used our power to do that, to deliver real help to people. The dental care program is going to start this year, and it's going to cover kids under 12 who need it most. They're going to get coverage. And then it's going to expand next year to children under 18, seniors, and people living with disabilities. About one in three Canadians have no coverage. So this is going to impact when it's fully implemented by the end of the agreement. Uh, nearly 10 million Canadians at the higher estimate. So this is a significant program. It's going to cover people's ability to get their teeth looked after. Uh, we fought to get Pharmacare moving forward. These are two things that the Liberals and Conservatives voted against not not a year ago. A year ago, when we brought forward a motion to bring forward dental care and Pharmacare, both separately were voted against by Liberals and Conservatives. And now a year later, we're getting it passed. And uh, we're going to have it passed in this agreement. So really, it's about getting people help. And then we also, uh, in, in the agreement, included action on helping people find a home that's in their budget, more action on fighting the climate crisis, and, and real supports for people in in their lives, including the agreement to make childcare into legislation that's permanent. So lots of real wins for people, and people want stability, given this has been a tough two years: a pandemic, a global, a global pandemic, a rising cost of living, and a war that makes all of us feel less safe. People really needed some stability and, uh, and something to give them confidence that they're getting the help they need, and that's what we delivered.
0: Uh, Rosemary Barton talking about this on her program yesterday, of course, on CBC, uh, suggesting that this probably could work as long as you avoid catching each other off guard. Uh, how much communication is necessary here between yourself and the Prime Minister going forward uh, to make sure that you don't catch each other off guard?
1: Yeah, part of the agreement is that we will have regular communication We expressly outlined in the agreement that we will disagree, that there will be disagreements. We remain an opposition party. But uh, the principle is that we need to put aside those differences in areas where we can work together. And where we can't work together, we're going to continue to push for more. We're going to continue to hold the government to account. But we're going to have open lines of communications. I believe that this is something we're entering into in good faith with the goal of getting help to people. But it doesn't mean that we're letting the Liberals off the hook. We're going to remain vigilant. We're going to remain pushing for more and fighting for the help that people need and willing to call them out when things aren't happening. But the principle really here is the good faith of making sure that this happens comes from the desire to get some things done in this parliament.
0: Is is there a deal breaker here or or is there always going to be an anticipation that uh, before the Liberals introduce legislation, they're going to run it by you first?
1: There'll be a combination of things. One, we'll certainly get a heads up on things that are confidence early on so that we know what's going on and we can give our, our decision on it. And there's checkpoints built into the agreement. We're going to be looking in this budget as the earliest checkpoint to see that the funding for the dental care program is there. And that will be one early sign that we can continue to work together. So baked into this agreement are clear checkpoints that we need to see reached, clear steps that need to be taken, and as long as they're being taken, as long as we're moving forward on the things that we've agreed on, things that we've used our power to achieve, then we'll continue to be able to work together.
0: Uh, well, there's one bump in the road already one week into this deal. Uh, let's talk about defense spending. Uh, I've seen a couple of different headlines, depending on which publication uh, you read. I read a number of them yesterday. One suggesting that you were against uh, in the increase in defense spending. I don't think that's particularly the case, but you're not comfortable with the 2% goal. But explain what, uh, what your view is on
1: this. Yeah, you've actually framed it really fairly. We we understand a couple of things. One is that for a long time we've noted, and we've got uh, members of parliament uh, in my team that uh, represent army bases, that represent uh, communities where there is a significant number of Canadian armed forces. And one of the things that we've noted is that we send our armed forces to do tasks without the sufficient equipment. One example is uh, on Vancouver Island, the search and rescue hospital, helicopters that are used by our armed forces are so old that replacement parts are no longer produced so military personnel are actually building and fabricating their own replacement parts for helicopters they fly around for search and rescue that's an untenable situation it's unsafe it's bad worker uh, worker conditions, worker safety conditions. so that's something that you know we can't have so to fill that gap where the equipment we ask with the the responsibilities that we ask of our armed forces, they should have the equipment to do it. So that's something that we understand is going to require increased investment. So we understand that, and we also understand that we're in a world that feels less safe, and understandably so. So we need to provide more more investments to be able to do our part. Uh, where we differ, where we disagree is, uh, I made it really clear, we do not support the 2% uh, that's kind of arbitrarily decided by NATO. We do not think that Canada has to reach that number. And we also think that there's investments we need to be making in, In international development, things that Canada does really well, peacekeeping, diplomacy, and supports, humanitarian supports, to make the world a safer place. We understand that that needs to be done, and Canada can play a really meaningful role. We think we should be playing that role where we've been most effective.
0: Do you have a number in mind, if not
1: 2%? Well, we're going to look at what's being proposed, but uh, something that includes some increase, not just in uh, the equipment, but also personnel. We know that there's been a a decrease in personnel in our armed forces, so we understand that some increase is appropriate. Uh, We need to do a a deeper assessment of what the needs are in terms of equipment and personnel and then what would be appropriate to meet those needs. Um, So there would be some increase that we support, but uh, we, we do not believe in the 2%, and we know that the increases should not in any way cut into investment in people's health and healthcare system and the programs that we've pushed for.
0: Would you be supportive of a a, a staggered increase, uh, you know, percentages each year? I mean, I, I don't think anybody, even Peter McKay, a former defense minister, of course, in the Harper government said, Look, you can't go from 1.39 to 2. It's just logistically impossible. Uh, but but would you be supportive of doing this in stages?
1: So, some increase, I think, is appropriate, given, given the gaps, particularly in personnel and equipment, uh, particularly when we say we're going to send our forces in to do something, And they don't have the equipment to do it. I think there's no doubt that we need to make investments there. So, yeah, we're we're, uh, open to looking at what those uh, proposals are around increases. uh, And we think that staggering it makes some sense in terms of not doing it all at once. Uh, But really, our focus is what can we do to be the most effective possible on the world stage to keep the world safer and, and to do our part to contribute towards that? And how do we equip our armed forces to do the work that we ask them to do?
0: Meet Singh, uh, as always, uh, Mr. Singh, a pleasure having you on the program. I know it's a busy day for you. Thanks for taking a few minutes with us this morning.
1: My pleasure. And you might have heard uh, my daughter in the background. In a lot of ways, this agreement was struck because of her birth. It kind of triggered one of the phone calls. So. Uh, the Anhad Accord is something we uh, informally say amongst ourselves. But uh, she might—you might have heard her in the background there. But it's an honor okay. to be well, on. The show. Well, Thank you.
0: It's great. Well, that's what working from home is all about, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> Thank thanks you. again, Mr. Singh, and uh, good luck with the deagle going forward. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, of course, the leader of the federal NDP party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what's going on in federal politics and uh, always pleased to welcome back for our weekly uh, discussion about politics, uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days.
2: Hi, Bill. I am doing well. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Good. Okay, let's pop first of all into the daycare program. Uh, I don't know what the holdup was. I mean, the information we're hearing uh, is this is essentially the same deal that's been on the table for the last four or five months. Uh, I'm wondering it's the cynic in me maybe Laurie, just you like know, the fact that there's an election coming up in the first week of June might have been a, a catalyst to get this thing done
2: oh I think so for sure and I think for both for both parties involved right like I think I mean obviously Ontario being the most populous province this deal um you know most of not most of but a big chunk of the money is going to end up in Ontario a big chunk of the people affected live in Ontario. So in some ways, like even though the prime minister had all the other provinces sign on, you can't really call it a national program, you know, without, without Ontario. Mm -hmm. And so I think for Doug Ford, I mean, he didn't want to go to the polls with this thing still on the table, but he also wanted to be able to show that he Didn't necessarily accept what was first on offer, that he was able to back and forth a bit with the prime minister so that he was able to to get something that's really in Ontario's interests and that meets its particular needs. But yeah, I mean, like we're getting pretty close to the kickoff of the campaign in earnest. And so I think Premier Ford was quite keen to have this signed before that.
0: And, and that's politicking. I mean, you know, I've had that discussion many times in various forums. But, I mean, uh, Jason Kenney and, and, you know, the prime minister are not exchanging uh, Christmas cards these days. Uh, <laughs> uh, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, same thing. But they, I, I don't want to say they jumped at it, but I, I'm sure there was some negotiation. Uh, but there was an eagerness to partake in this. i i, I don't. just wondering, is is, the, is Doug Ford not there yet that he can understand, okay, sometimes we have to set politics aside? <laughs>
2: It struck me that, like, the Ford-Trudeau relationship is very interesting because the two of them, like, in some ways, they have such a a high-profile personal brand, right? Like, they're obviously partisan, you know, and Doug Ford is, is, is a conservative and Justin Trudeau is a liberal. But at the same time, they both really bring their own personal style brand, you know, whatever you want to call it, to the political arena. And so this is a very that that's they bring that to the relationship with one another. And Doug Ford during COVID in the first part of it was, you know, Christopher Freeland's best friend. Like he was a yeah. big, you know, big friend to the federal government. Got along great with him and that seemed to be good for his own popularity at the time and so i don't necessarily think that it's in doug ford's interest to be too aggressive when it comes to the true to liberals at this point for his own political chances he's possibly looking at a scenario that's really tricky for him right where he comes back with a minority and the other two parties say we're not no one's going to support you you don't have a partner you're done and so he's got to get that majority and so i think for him He's, you know, there's always an incentive for a provincial premier to look like they're holding the federal government to account. They're, you know, they're they're arguing for their province. They're getting the best deal for their province. But I think for him, there's also value in showing that he can work with the federal government and get things done that way. And it will actually be better for Ontario.
0: Has he come to the point right now where he understands that a lot of the things that he wants to get done and a lot of things he's going to promise in this campaign uh he can't do without the cooperation of the federal government i mean we're talking about uh for instance the resources up in northern ontario that's 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 not a one-man job i mean there's going to have to be a cooperative effort for that uh, certainly the daycare program it, it just seemed his first couple of months in office maybe even his first year in office it was just well i'm a, I'm a conservative he's a liberal so i got to attack him and he did that about the the, the carbon yeah. tax and a number of different things took him to court twice on that and lost both times but is is he is he more understanding right now that okay you know you you've got to have some sense of cooperation and collaboration
2: i mean it's 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 just the way things are right like i mean the types of things that provincial premiers want to get progress on absolutely they can't do it without federal funding whether it's healthcare whether it's childcare you know fill in the blank and so for ford i mean yeah like i, I can remember him being a lot more partisan and that was part of his his appeal part of his brand is is a populist kind of like anti-elite we're not going to play ball with people like Justin Trudeau like his he, going back to that brand thing Justin Trudeau's brand is completely the opposite in many ways of Doug Ford's brand but i think for ford yeah like he he's going to want to be able to show ontario that when the federal government you know and and this partnership between the liberals and the ndp when they're willing to open the wallet and put some things on the table here you know, he, the, the role of the premier is to be part of that conversation and to be able to get what he can for Ontario. It'll be interesting to see, um, you know, how he plays the, the whole campaign. And, you know, someone like in Stephen Del Duca's position, for instance, like not not anywhere near as well known, I think not not the same kind of brand recognition at all. And so what will be the dynamic between Trudeau and Del Duca? Does Trudeau kind of want Ford to win, you know, to continue this relationship that they've seemed to have built over the past few years?
0: Yeah, it's still to come, I guess. We'll figure that out in just a couple of minutes. Uh, with Dr. Laura Turnbull from Dalhousie University, uh, watching uh, the, the West Block on Global yesterday, and uh, they had, uh, Bob Ray was on, of course, the uh, Canadian ambassador to the United Nations, uh, who is front and center, obviously, because of Canada's involvement with Ukraine. But he made an interesting point. He says Canada has to confront, and Canadians more sp- specifically, have to confront the very high cost of conflict with Russia. In other words, you, you want us to help Ukraine, and and that's the right thing to do. Uh, but if that's the case, you know, the, the inference here seem to be stop complaining about gasoline prices and other things, because he, as he mentioned, and I guess, guess maybe reminded us, uh, the cost of conflict is is very high, and we're, as consumers, going to have to pay it.
2: That's it. And we're already seeing that. And so, yeah, I mean, I think part of what he's trying to do in representing Canada in the world and representing the world back to us, too, is to say, like, you know, we, we can be supportive of Ukraine we can talk about how vicious this attack is and we can you know think about how we want to be there with ukraine to make make this better and to try, you know try to contain this threat and fortify ukraine against russia but yeah like if if this escalates if this goes on we're all going to pay we're we're paying you know and and that's part of the responsibility we have and it's kind of like you know makes me think of zelensky's words too right like he appreciates our support but we need more right and so that's and and the more can be all kinds of things but one of it one of the things is going to mean a willingness to to you know kind of pay part of that cost and yes there's there is absolutely a cost in many different ways
0: well, it kind of reminded me as I was listening to him uh, of the stories we heard from our parents or grandparents, whatever the case might be, about having living through a world war as they did in, yeah. in the, you know the early nineteen forties, and, and you know we've learned I guess historically about you know what was happening over there you know in, in Europe where the battles were happening, but Canadians back home here had to pay a price too. Uh, you know, their, food was rationed, gasoline was rationed, all sorts of things. I don't think we're going to get to that point, uh, but I guess if, to a point it depends on how long the conflict goes on, doesn't it?
2: exactly and we're seeing how integrated the world is right like we tend to think about you know especially over the past you know couple of years with the focus on buy america and the way that our trade relationship with the us has been affected by the by strategies like that and even with the turnover between you know from trump to biden we still see Protectionism. We still see a focus on the American economy and how they can protect themselves, and we end up, you know, having to respond to that and figure out: Are we still able to protect a space for ourselves and our relationship with the U.S. to keep that integrated supply chain going? But we, the whole world is integrated, and so what happens in one part of the world, you know, it's not that far away. We feel it here because we we share, we trade, we we do all of these things together, and so yeah, I mean, the longer this goes on. And, the, you know, the possibility that it would escalate means that the the price for everybody continues to go up.
0: Uh, just before you joined us, uh, we had uh, Jagmeet Singh, the uh, leader of the federal NDP, on the uh, talking about a couple of different things. It's, it's been a week now since, of course, they've made the announcement about the collaboration, shall we say, not coalition, uh, between the NDP and, and the Trudeau government. Uh, but they seem to be heading towards the, maybe their first spat in this young relationship. And, and that, of course, is defense spending. <laughs> You know that two percent goal that other NATO countries are pushing for right now. Uh, Mr. Singh told us again this morning that he's not comfortable with that, but he's not against uh, uh, any kind of uh, increase in spending for the defense. Uh, Is there is there some wiggle room there for a compromise?
2: I think so. I mean, in some ways, I think this is probably um, the NDP wanting to continue to assert themselves as an independent party, which makes political sense, I think, right, like just because they've signed this this confidence and supply agreement, as you say, it's not a coalition and it's not a collapse of the two parties into each other. So Jagmeet Singh is going to want to continue to say to his base and to Canadians who he wants to continue to attract more votes. Look, you know, we're not on side necessarily with everything the liberals want to do. And so defense spending being an example. I mean, when he says that the 2% is arbitrary, well, you know, it's not arbitrary. It's what NATO partners have agreed to. There's a reason for it. But, you know, it's it's still not necessarily, you know, not necessarily what's best for Canada at this moment. And if all of the NATO, NATO partners got up to the 2%, and we have quite a ways to go, you know, to get to the 2%, that doesn't mean that the world would be any more peaceful or any more safe. And so there's lots of questions. But, yeah, I mean, like, he, I think he's probably politically smart. To continue to show that there's space between him and the liberals, particularly on something like defense spending. And it's something that the liberals could pursue in the budget. And, you know, there's a space there for Jagmeet Singh to say, yeah, yeah, you know, we're still going to support the budget. That's what the confidence and supply agreement is for. But we, we're we not excited about the defense part, but oh, is we're, we're voting for a whole package here, not not a line item kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and then we had situations like that in the past, of course, when it came to things like COVID spending, etc., cetera, where the NDP, we're not crazy about it, but you're right. They just figured, okay, for the greater good, I guess that. Yeah. A week into this though, Laurie, are you comfortable that this is going to last as long as they suggest, maybe for another three years, at least maybe even longer? Uh, we don't know, of course, but I mean, it just seems I, the phrase that that I heard over the weekend was the same one that, uh, that Premier Horgan used in BC when they, they did set a coalition, of course, with the Green Party and, and his NDP party. Uh, no surprises. That's basically it. Uh can you do that in government?
2: So, like I think it's it's too early to tell right now whether this is a strategic arrangement that works in the short term for reasons that are beneficial to the two parties or whether this is a sign of a more enduring shift in how the political parties want to want to work with parliament and want to govern in a minority government situation. So, you know it's possible that Jigmeet Singh and Justin Trudeau have found enough to work together on, and they've they see enough strategic mutual advantage in signing on to an agreement like this. It gives them the space to hold on for the three years. It gives them the you know, if that's what they want to do and it keeps the Tories at you know kind of at bay for three years. It keeps it you know, sends the message that look, you can choose whoever you want to be their leader. They're not going to be prime minister anytime soon. And it kind of frustrates the conservatives for obvious reasons. But it's also possibly, you know, like if if this were to continue and if we build any kind of normalization around the concept of a confidence and supply agreement, what it what it suggests is that minority governments can last a long time. They don't have to expire in two years, even though that's usually the way we do it. This agreement is saying, no, we can we can, you know, kind of map out what we're going to do for a three year period, a four year period and just do it. And if that's the case, it could and people and people buy that. It could give the Liberal government a lot of protection over the next few years. So I don't know what's going to happen in an election in 2025 if we wait that long. But if the Conservatives were to get a minority or, you know, a, a plurality of seats, but not a majority, you can imagine you know, the Liberals and the NDP saying, well, you know, we've got a confidence and supply agreement, so we're going to renew that. And that's it. Right. <laughs> like, we're going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And so it's, if, if, if it catches on, it, it could potentially be quite a significant shift in how Parliament works in Canada.
0: In, a week into this deal though what are you hearing uh, on the street <laughs> uh, because I'm hearing some rumors mm-hmm. uh, from some folks up in Ottawa that, that, that uh, s- some of the most vocal opponents well, maybe not so vocal are, are liberal backbenchers who said we weren't consulted on this we don't like this at all I mean, they're not going public about this I don't you know they don't want to ruin their political careers I suppose but is there insurrection in the ranks here within the Liberals?
2: It has always struck me that this particular prime minister, like he's been surprised a few times over his career by caucus frustration over decisions that have been made at the leadership level without proper consultation and sometimes some of the leaks that we've come out of of the caucus it strikes me that this is you know this is the result of caucus not being consulted enough not being brought on side and then they get irritated and they let something blow because it doesn't feel good to be in that sort of situation where the leadership is making decisions and you're sort of expected to come on board. Aaron O'Toole tried that and it didn't work out too well, but sometimes like when you're the prime minister and you're delivering a win, you know, it's it's easier for you to get away with making decisions and expecting caucus to just come on board with you because you're the prime minister, right. And you're delivering something for them. It's harder to do it when you're in opposition and you're not winning, but it's a risk. It's a risky strategy. And because over time, like, Let's see how the vote goes the next time. Right. Because if we get to 2025 and all of the you know, this this confidence and supply agreement has kept stability for that time. And we've got dental care and pharma care and all these things we didn't have before. And then, you know, the liberals come back with fewer seats. You know, if it turns out that this is strategically more advantageous to the NDP somehow, and I don't really anticipate that, but let's say if it was. You might have a lot of really irritated liberals at that point and say, you know, we gave this away. We didn't have to do this because there's no question the relationship between the liberals and the NDP was quite solid. It didn't need this. You know, they, they chose to do this, but it, it wasn't necessary.
0: 2025, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves here, but uh, it just seemed that especially after the last election last year, uh, there was a number of disgruntled backbenchers uh, uh, once again, but there was also, uh, in some circles, an anticipation that, well, you know, he's probably going to step down within the next year. Or so, and of course, you know, the prime yeah. minister denied that, uh, and I guess he's been emboldened now because of this deal with the NDP. Uh, but is there a possibility that uh, that he may not even lead the Liberals into the, if, in fact, we go to twenty twenty five, that it might not be
2: Justin Trudeau? Sure, and he can't say it right? As soon as he says, yeah, I'm thinking about taking a walk. That's it, right? Like then all of a sudden people are putting up websites and having meetings and raising money and he's a lame duck. And so he can't go, he can't say it until he's ready to walk out the door. And so we won't know about it until, well, not that we won't know about it again, depends on leaks, but he's not going to take that step unless he's really ready. And at the same time, like this could give him his, if it stays intact till 2025 and he stays, This gives him his 10 years in the prime minister's chair, which is, you know, voters tend to get itchy around that point anyway, if they weren't already. And so that's a path for him to stay if he wants. But it's also stability if the liberals decide to change leadership. If the NDP decides to change leadership, there's, you know, there's an agreement in place that's between the parties as opposed to between the, the individuals who hold that leadership now. And so either way, you know, it gives them some kind of a framework to work in, even if there's a leadership shift
0: i only got about a minute left, but it just as we were talking about this, it reminded me of uh, Jean Chrétien after a, an election victory, kind of hinting at the fact that that he was thinking of stepping down. And look at the turmoil that caused within the party. Yeah. Uh, the Paul Martin camp all of a sudden became very militant about that. And there was a rift in that party that probably lasted about eight or nine years.
2: That's it, right? Like, And, and that's the last thing, I mean, that anybody in the Liberal Party would want. The other thing I was thinking too, uh, you know, over the last couple of minutes is, a lot of VMPS, I have to think on the liberal side, didn't want that election, right? Like people were nervous in 2021 about going to begin with, but it was the big gamble that he was going to go and get his majority and he didn't. So I think there was a sense of, you know, nobody really won that election. Like everybody got a disappointing result unless you're like Yves Blanchet did pretty well. But apart from him, like every one of the leaders had a reason to be disappointed with a result of the 2021 election. And so there, that is going to only fuel any sort of caucus resentment and and you know kind of sh- restlessness that existed already, and so this like agreement of confidence and supply could worsen that you know to the extent that they feel it was foist upon them.
0: It's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch the dynamic as they go forward on this because that's going to get uh, a lot more contentious I guess when we get to, well I guess the budget next month will be the start for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Stay well and uh, we'll talk again next week. Thanks for this today.
2: Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Take care.
0: Take care, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, you director of the School of Public Administration at House University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We know there's an election coming up first week of June here in the province of Ontario. And uh, depending on which poll you read, uh, the things are rather tight. Some are predicting uh, Ford may get back in with a minority. Others are suggesting there could be an upset, maybe another ma- majority government. Uh, We won't know until we count the votes, but the preparation for that election is ongoing and has been for quite some time now. And a big part of that, of course, is uh, setting a tone with your uh, campaign. And we know that uh, all the major parties are doing that right now. And uh, we've got some information uh, from some sources at Queen's Park about what the conservatives the progressive conservatives, that is, and the liberals are uh, chiseling out right now as their game plan. And, and there's some interesting differences here. Uh, to discuss this and analyze uh, what's going to be happening going forward as they ramp up this campaign, please to welcome to the program Dr. Joanne McNeish, who is an Associate Professor of Marketing at Ryerson University. Uh, professor, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today.
3: Oh, well, thanks, Bill. Love love to be back. Uh, we, we've had a good discussion about that Liberal logo, which they adopted. Did not yeah. take the price, but that's okay. Well, let's so we can dig into what each of them is communicating and and their approaches it's fascinating
0: well maybe that conversation you and i had was a deciding factor i don't know but uh, uh <laughs> as you, but as you mentioned at the time though you know these are trial balloons uh which and maybe this one is too i and i want to go if i could first to the liberal thing so we just brought them up though uh i'm, I'm looking at some of the things now this is this is unofficial but of course it kind of looks right now. Uh, replacing the minimum wage with a living wage. Um, um, uh, what else have we got here? Uh, a number of different things that uh, open for business, making ends meet, uh, help for workers. Uh, this kind of sounds an awful lot like uh, a lot of the stuff the liberals did under uh, the last regime. Of course, uh, when Kathleen Wynne was the premier, uh, replacing the minimum wage with a living wage. Of course, they had that pilot program uh, in that particular place, too. Uh, is this a, a reissue of some past policies, or are you looking for something fresh here?
3: So so that's really interesting. So I, too, thought that list looked quite familiar, and and I'm I'm a bit puzzled because with a new leader, you'd probably want to grab a program that sets your mark as a new leader. The other thing, though, I looked at is the kind of words they're using and the tone that they're trying to strike. And I was quite fascinated by, first of all, the Ontario Liberal Plan for Economic Dignity. And I, I don't know if you do much reading, but uh, the economic dignity sounds a, very, a lot of fancy words to try to explain something. So when you're trying to pull customers from your competitor, shouldn't you be using the words that those customers understand, your competitor customers understand? Because what does igni- e- economic dignity mean? So I look at the headlines. And then I picked through the website and I was looking at words like dedicated and talented activist. We're going to organize Ontario, I guess we're disorganized, and they've got victory targets. So this not only feels like Kathleen Wynne, but Kathleen Wynne on socialist steroids. So is that <laughs> meant back to sort of a different place? In other words, Because remember, this website opens with that. We've got to defeat Doug Ford. So Doug Ford is the the real enemy here. It's less about the party. So we've got some promises. And and again, we always agree, whatever's posted on the web can change any second. Um, But the wording here was what fascinated me is, what does this mean? What's this gonna communicate to the person in Ontario who isn't gonna do a deep dive into policy, but is just gonna hear these key words. Why are we focusing on activism and organizing Ontario and victory targets? Who is that aimed at? Is that the Uh, truckers?
0: I don't know if they know.
3: But you know what's interesting
0: about this though? And and you know when Stephen Del Duca became the leader of the of the Ontario Liberal Party, uh, of course, you know they they send the attack stuff out right away, and the big right. knock that they were consistently driving to the voters at that time, as you recall, was he's just a, a Kathleen Wynne, um, you know, redux. I mean, he's it's going to be all the same stuff, and no, no, I'm going to be different. This looks very similar uh, to, right. to, to the Kathleen Wynne government, so you know it, it kind of validates what the PCs have been saying about him
3: right and and that's a again dangerous thing to do in an and again as you pointed out rel depending on which poll you believe relatively close election and i think we'd both say yeah i'm not sure we'd call it either side and and today all we're doing is looking at the communication but is this strong enough to overcome and one of these seconds, you're going to let me talk about that Ontario get it done YouTube, but is it yeah. going to be strong enough to overcome that absolutely dominant personality who's represented Ontario during COVID? And, and I, I know everybody wants to criticize, but I can't imagine being the person in charge dealing with something every day you have no clue uh, what it's all about. And I've seen a few politicians say, you know, look, could we cut people a little bit of slack? Because, you know, everybody just did the best they could. So, you, so what you need is something that's going to undermine his status as someone who brought us through COVID, who has now handed out a second gift. So the daycare. Look at the timing. Like you, you can't doubt that Doug Ford's a great politician. First, he sent us all refunds for our license certificate. Perfect timing. That was the February gift. Uh, March gift, and then uh, daycare is going to be the April gift. I can hardly wait to see May, what then? each gift is getting a little bit bigger. And what what are the Ontario Liberals offering? A lot of fancy words, it feels like. Now, maybe it'll hit with their base, but it's not the base they need to be concerned about. It's the competitors, um, uh, customers, the, the Ontario PCs. What's going to pull them away from Doug Ford? And I don't see it yet.
0: But How important is it, when you're developing a campaign like this, to have a catchy slogan? Uh, and and uh, we'll get into the PC thing in a, in a couple of seconds here. Yeah. Uh, it's something that people can, it, first of all, remember, and, and as you mentioned, relate to. Uh, and it, it just it seems as if they're missing the mark here. Now, you read some of the bullet points, and you say, yeah, that's a good program. OK, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that's interesting. Uh, so the substance is there, but as you mentioned, most people don't dig that deep. I mean, they, they want something that's that's catchy, that they can remember, and, and that the candidates uh, can, you know, when they're knocking on doors, can get, and, and we saw that. I mean, Crack had the little red book, and all the promises were in there. You know, Mike Harris had right. the common sense revolution. It, it Whether you like the policies or not, it was easily understood, and, and I don't know if, if this is. I mean... You know, if I get a, a, you know, a five page flyer, you know, from the candidate in this area, I will read it because I'm a political junkie. I don't know that right. everybody else will. And, and and if I'm a worker right now and I'm concerned about my future and I'm concerned about the fact that, uh, you know, my benefits have been impacted by COVID and, and you know, I'm not sure about the, how, you know, how safe my job is, economic dignity doesn't resonate with me. That may be a phrase that somebody in the back room liked. But is it a phrase that, that that people use in their everyday lives and something they can relate to? It's a good question.
3: Right, and and and, and again, see, you and I love digging into these things and, and looking at the policies, and we fall, we we love. It. But most people are too busy, and we live in a social media two second world. World. So in fact, it's it, it's even more important today to have something that allows. And and you got it right that the candidates at the door could talk about it. When they leave the flyer, it's in big, bold letters. So branding is about connecting all the messages together under one simple idea. And economic dignity, oh, you know what? Workers, I think they would have been better off to go the Ontario Liberal plan for workers, and just admit we're going socialist, but that's not a bad place to be. Uh, Canada used to have conserva- social conservatism, and we were comfortable in that place. And I, and again, this is taking it too far, but in marketing, sometimes we really push it. You know, in the midst of Russia invading um, the Ukraine, do you really wanna be using things that have this marker of the People's Party, of the dedicated to talented activists? We're to on organize Ontario I don't. It, it, it feels wrong for the time. It feels too cer- cerebral. It feels too in their heads as opposed to feet on the ground. You've got two seconds at the door. Someone's flipping through TikTok. They're looking at YouTube videos. People spend two seconds on things. So you need something that in two seconds encapsulates what you stand for. Now, it may be they're carving out this position for the next election. You know, sometimes you actually understand you may not, you don't think you're gonna do that well this time, uh, Doug Ford has not made egregious errors. And again, I understand everybody has their point of view on this, but we've come through COVID. Well, we got one more year, don't tell anybody, but pandemics last three years, but he's decided it's kind of, we're back to normal. So how do you, how do you uh, fight against somebody with such a dominant presence in the media, and has all these financial levers he can start to pull, and he's pulling them in beautiful sequence. So, I think, could this be preparation uh, to, to that the next point, time though? Up?
0: Yeah, because I'm intrigued by, as you say, the messaging. And, and, and you know, one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you on the program today is because you use the word, I mean, you know, this is politics, but it's marketing. I mean, tr- trying to win yes. an election and try to develop a brand is marketing, and, and if you don't do it right. Uh, well, you know, God help you, because you got one chance for a first impression, right? right. But I wanted to ask you, but when I'm looking at some of these bullet points here, you, uh, make sure every worker is covered by benefits. Uh, Build to a four-day work week. Uh, and 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 juxtapose that with what, the as you mentioned, Doug Ford has been announcing over the last little while. Uh, I mean, I never thought I'd see, a, you know, a conservative premier standing beside Jerry Dias making an announcement about rights. It seems to me as if the blue-collar worker seems to be battleground that both of these parties are picking right now saying we need to win them
3: yes yes so both of these parties have learned the lesson of donald trump which is the uh what for whatever donald trump called the uh, the what he called the new york crowd or the intellectual crowd donald trump understood very well because he walked the construction sites he lived every day with the trades he understood how to clearly communicate simply to them. Both of these parties understand, stop talking to people of privilege and start talking to people uh, who are just getting by, who have worked all the way through COVID, the grocery store workers, the Tim Horton workers, the factory workers, they're the people that have actually kept the province going and so deliver the goods to them. Because behind both of these, neither of them are talking too much about taxes right now. And that's interesting to me because normally during an election, we get sort of, we'll cut your taxes. And there is at least one benefit about um, the Liberal platform has a tax reduction. But no, this is all about immediate in-your-pocket advantages. And that speaks to a very different audience. So you, you caught that same thing of this is appealing to people who just work hard for a living and are really tired of, as if it, it really tired that other people seem to be getting ahead and they're not, and they're the people that have kept the economic engine going. They've had to go into the quotes office every day while the rest of us were able to stay home safely in our homes. So I, I, I think that that's right. That's that swing part of the vote. Now, Ontario PCs and Doug Ford in particular have done or had that understood those people and that that's been part of their base for quite a while. What do the Liberals need to do to pull some of that base away from uh, Doug Ford? Because that's gonna be the piece. It's not a matter that the Ontario Liberals can keep their base and the Ontario PC keep their base. It's the Ontario PCs need to keep their base, not lose anybody. And the Ontario Liberals have to come and get them. Is this the right messaging to attract those people? I don't don't hear it yet. But what we learned from the truckers uh, convoy is that a, that's a group of smart, interesting, educated people. I mean, people had the words about them. But if you saw the interviews from uh, some of the leaders, these are people that know how to galvanize and organize. So could it be that in the background, because you and I also know, what are the negotiations that are going on to bring a huge group of people one way or the other? Because while our individual votes definitely count, there's also the work that happens when you deliver a group of votes, and so I see uh, both parties working really hard to attract that, that group of hardworking Ontarians who just want to get COVID over and get back to, back to life and, and, and get somewhere. And if you're someone, it's
0: interesting to see how this is going to roll out too. I mean, and I agree with you. If, if you know, the, the Labor at the blue collars are, are going to be the target for the Liberals and the PCs, uh, the, the NDP, again, hey, what about us? I mean, that's traditionally been their, their foundation. But let me, I got a couple of minutes left here. I wanted to get into, okay. into what we've heard about the PC campaign too, Professor. Uh, Get it done is the key phrase here. And as you mentioned, there's a YouTube video on this. Uh, That's a catchy phrase, get it done. But when you look at what uh, they're talking about in the YouTube video here, uh, very little detail about policy. It's it's really just, you know, we're moving forward on this. You know, we don't want to waste time with people that don't know how to make up their minds, yada, 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 that sort of thing. Uh, I I can see it in one sense, it's very appealing. But if you're looking for substance, and well, what kind of policies are you going to enact? Not a whole lot so far.
3: Well, well, actually, if you jump into their website, and you go down a few levels, you can start to find some uh, references to what the candidates are going to be talking about at the door or at candidate meetings. So there is some substance to this. But I think Doug Ford has taken a page out of Do- uh, Donald Ford's playbook, uh, something that you can you can uh, hang your hat on something that can be uh, a song that can be played at every rally. Uh, when they drive down my street and the candidates are there, you can have a car going by with this song playing. Because the other thing, if you look at it, get it done, Doug Ford. There's something uh, in in your ear that that sticks together. This is all about Doug Ford brought you through. The words always fighting for you, just like where we started. Um, Ontario PC party for the people. So again, a little bit of this socialist leaning and that, and again, that is their base, uh, but they're doing two things. They've got this catchy slogan, it's, it's fun, it references Doug Ford. So they're clearly hanging their hat on the fact that Doug Ford is what's gonna take them over the finish line, because it's less about the party, I, w- I would say, it, it is, is exactly what you're saying, that the Ontario Liberal plan is less about the candidates and the leader, but more about the platform Ontario PCs is it's all about the leaders. But again, the PCs are much better organized for lots of reasons, Uh, not all the Liberals for for why they're not so organized. But uh, PCs have already got images of the candidates up on the website, you can hear a little bit about their what what they're going to stand for in their writing. But it is in these individual words that I can almost bet that these words will be repeated over and over again the party for the people always fighting for you back to where we started and interestingly back to where we started for the PCs is nobody thought Doug Ford would win the election the first time so it's all about getting in the trenches and fighting hard we're not we're not assuming anything we're going to fight hard but also as we come out of COVID get back to where we were before COVID um, so I actually think this campaign is more interesting. And that little video, it almost brought me to tears, honestly, didn't didn't you just love it? You really felt like he was there for you. i That was at least my feeling. So I think- That's the power of
0: incumbency, isn't it?
3: Oh, absolutely. And again, he's also doing the behaviors. He's delivering these nice little economic to individual people he hits in a nice sequential order. Remember he's apparently he could have had the $10 a day daycare a long time ago. Suddenly he's doing the announcement today. I don't think that's happened since. I think he dragged the negotiations so he could deliver these things. So I think this is all about, you've seen what I can do. You can see what our leader does. And by the way, a strong leader. And in these times when things are so uncertain, strengthen leaders tends to be the choice. And so, for Steve, he needs to be have much more an appearance of strength. We only have to look at the Ukraine. The uh, president of Ukraine was a stand-up comedian. He knows how to use the media. How did he get that job? He got the job because he presented the face of a leader by acting his way through. And during this war, in fact, that those skills are coming in good stead. So sadly, we do live more in a world of, illusion and presentation and less about the substance doesn't mean we don't also want substance the sad thing is we only ever find out about the substance after the election yeah you know, it's, it's interesting there. i know we,
0: we're we're just about out of time but it's, okay. you know it's fascinating and this will probably be the foundation for our next conversation i guess professor uh because yep. a year ago doug ford was actually his his popularity individual popularity he was trailing his own party yeah, uh, and, yeah. and and now, but they've chosen him and said, no, you're going to be the face of it. So it's interesting uh, what a difference a year makes, I guess, in politics. But let's finish uh, that up when we have our next conversation about everything else. Always a pleasure. Uh, Thank so- you,
3: Bill. Fantastic. Looking forward to the next time.
0: <laughs> you betcha. Take care now. Dr. Joanne McNeish uh, from uh, Ryerson University talking about the platform stuff that we found out so far from the, the Liberals'